Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Derek, we're here and it's time to break rule number one of Fight Club. We're talking about Fight Club. Jack's tired shoulder blades. Welcome back to Wonder Tour. Um, today we are talking Fight Club. Drew, I don't know. It, this this movie is um it's it's mayhem, and uh, we will talk about mayhem today um, quite a bit. Why don't you uh, open us up with a word of wisdom about this movie? All right. I love this movie for similar reasons that I love Christopher Nolan movies. This movie is wide open for interpretation. It's really interesting when you look at it because the book is kind of straightforward. I haven't read the book, but I did a little bit of research. But the movie really is not a straight, um, it's not just a straight movie made off the book. It's an adaption. And because it's an adaption, um, there's a lot of adaptation. <laughs> an adaptation, sorry, there you go. An adaptation. Um, there's a lot of leeway that David Fincher takes. And as a result, he does kind of the Nolan thing where he leaves things open. You know, for example, Nolan with the top spinning at the end of Inception, right? You're left to oh, wonder, okay. like, is this whole thing a dream or is it not? And honestly, we're jumping right into spoilers in Fight Club. I think one thing that you're left with at the end, at least I'm left with when I watch this movie, is is it all a dream? <laughs> right? We're opened by being told that the main character, Edward Norton, has insomnia and depression. The doctor describes him, or the doctor prescribes him with medicine for it. And then throughout the rest of the movie, there's a lot of things that are dreamlike that are happening. Um, and I, I don't know. So I just want to hit on that up front. If you're curious about all the conspiracy theories, there is a good website that I read that that, you know, it's definitely some stuff on there that you're like, well, I don't know if this has a lot of linkage to what's actually happening in the movie. But it's interesting to read if you're a big Fight Club fan. If you go to jackdurden.com, you can read that. I got to give credit where credit is due. Somebody did a good job of compiling all of this arguments for um, a, a different way maybe to watch the movie. And that different way is that everything is a dream. All of these characters are made up in uh, in Edward Norton or Jack's head. And the whole thing is his process of coping, essentially, right? It's him dealing with some great tragedy. Maybe it's that he has actually testicular cancer, as it says it as he goes to that support group in the beginning. But it's something like that, right? It's him going through this coping process and trying to figure out how is he going to move on in his life. So that is one way to yeah. read it. It also uh, explains how you can have running water and power in an abandoned home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Who's yeah. paying the bills around here, man? <laughs> I know there is a lot of yeah. I mean, it explains a lot. And and at the end of the rewatch of it for me, I, I had that feeling, and that's why I went and did the research and tried to come up with my own opinion. And if you're you know, I, I just want to offer that as as one option is yeah, it does make a lot of sense. I have one other thing that I I really need to talk to you about. It's very serious. <laughs> it's it's his bathrobe. <laughs> the two cups. Isn't that adorable? <laughs> oh my gosh. Tyler's yeah. bathrobe. <laughs> Tyler's bathrobe. It is. It is ridiculous. I love the uh I just love the contrast there, you know, with the type of person that Tyler is. And again, if uh if if Drew hasn't really kind of made it clear to you, we're we're really talking about these characters as characters. Um forget all the the spin and the the veil pulling and all that stuff where you know i'll show you what it really is and you know i i get it it's fun that that's a fun way to look at things and it's a fun way to to realize that maybe you know characters are symbols and all this stuff and you know you get into this like abstract game which is like you know onions and layers and but really we are going to pretty much play on the top layer of the onion today um, because we feel very strongly that there is some really good story truth there um, that we can extrapolate out into leadership. And uh, so that's where we're going to be at, right? We're, um, What's story truth, Derek? I think that's one thing that we've yeah, got to start with. You mentioned it before, but I, I think you should probably kind of touch on it again, because I liked your explanation last time Yeah. Uh, for us on the tour here. Yeah, so story truth is a term that I believe is actually coined by Tim O'Brien, um, famous author. Um, he, the first, I, I became familiar with it through the things they carried. Um, it's a book about the Vietnam War. It tells story. It tells a story that for the first maybe half of the novel is fiction. I mean, is nonfiction. And slowly you you start to look at it and be like, well, I don't know if that actually happened. And and then at the end, it kind of turns it and points it at the viewer and says, does it matter if this story happened exactly the way that I told it? Because the point is that this is like we're talking myths here. This is Wonder Tour. We care about myths. Right. And the point of a myth is that it has some kernel of truth at the core of it. And that truth doesn't really care necessarily. And now again, don't hear me. I'm not saying that you should lie and make up, you know, big stories and stuff like that to get attention. Not at all. But what I am saying is that there's a kernel of truth in a myth, and it doesn't really matter whether that myth happened exactly as it you think it did or not. Right? There's a certain reality there, regardless of perspective. You could say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think anybody who's reasonable. Uh, reasonably minded and really um, growth oriented, which I believe is is our uh, our crew here. You know, um, I think they they get that um, they're looking for lessons and everything. And really, that goes back to the kernel of truth that we've you know structured this podcast on, which is you know we can learn lessons from our favorite stories, right? So uh, it aligns well, and um, so. Let's um, where do you want to start on this? You, you, you kind of talked about him uh, having some uh, antidepressant medication prescribed to him. And I know we're not big on a sequential thing, 
but uh, it kind of starts out he's a mess, and then uh, let's just I don't know if we fast forward to well his job's kind of boring right his job's not really challenging him um, he really understands it very well doesn't he he does and his job has him traveling around doing product recall work for a car company. And it really seems to be one of the things that's taking a toll on his mind as he's we see the one scene of him. I don't remember even when it happened specifically where he's doing like the analysis in the on the car. And, he you know, he's like seeing like the burned human remains in the car. And this is a good point to talk about how like this is a dark comedy. So in a dark comedy, these movies tend to thrive on hyperbole. So, you know, everything is kind of overblown on purpose um so that part is it you know when you look at these things and you're trying to apply it to real life or when i do at least i'm always thinking like these things are way overblown in comparison to most of the time what you're actually going to experience in real life but it's kind of just like taking a molehill and making it into a mountain so that you can see it better right is that how you interpret this kind of the hyperbole in this movie derek yeah, that's exactly what I would do. And and I, I think it's because you've got to make some points in a short amount of time. You know, you don't have a lot of time uh, to meander around. And plus, people start to lose interest, too. So some of this is just pure in entertainment value. But, uh, man, this, this movie is all it's really full of like poignant spikes, you know, that just protrude from the entire story and you're just like whoa that just shocked me whoa that just shocked me you know and uh man and he even does it to people in the movie too right because he talks about you know his job and he he's just like yeah and so you know if i find out that it costs more you know to do this than to tell people or whatever right he he just kind of like you know he really pull, puts it out there and he's like, and it's a major car, you know, whatever. And he was just trying to shock that lady, wasn't he? And and he was even doing it when he was, um, let's just say he was conscious, right? Um, you know, uh, when he was awake, right? He's on the plane with the lady and he's he's kind of doing this to her. So he, he definitely enjoys it. Uh, but he's trying to shock within his small, his small area that he kind of lives in, right? He's got this kind of small life. And this is before Tyler kind of enters in. And um, Drew, let's talk about what what Tyler does immediately, you know, when he enters in. His <laughs> well, one, one thing real quick, really just to just to yeah. touch on, just in case people haven't been watching Fight Club recently, is he does. We, we do need to introduce the two other like key characters in the in the movie uh, that come in before Tyler does. So he gets kind of addicted to going to these support groups. The narrator does Edward Norton. He starts going to the testicular cancer support group and he ends up going to all these other support groups uh, as well. And he kind of takes a liking to this Bob guy at the first support group, uh, just this big dude. He's a big teddy bear. And he has some kind of a tie to the narrator because he allows him to have an emotional release that he doesn't get in that he's not getting anywhere else in his life and it's causing him some pain. Um, we all, we then have this whole, you know, he has this kind of scheme that he's running where he's going back and forth to these support groups every day. 
and pretending he has these different conditions. Um, and then we have him, uh, we have Marla Singer, uh, Helen and Bonham Carter's character come into the story and she's this woman that starts showing up at these same support groups that the narrator or Jack, I might use Jack. So I'm going to try to make sure that everybody's aware that I, I might use the word narrator, Jack or Edward Norton interchangeably here as they are all the same character. But he, he has a problem when she starts showing up to these support groups. And we're going to talk about this in the forced moral. So I don't know that we want to go too deep into it here, but I will just say that this part is really unsettling for me because he's watching Marla lie in these support groups and he's seeing himself in it because he's also obviously lying at these support groups and saying that he has these things and it, I don't know, just as a viewer, I just feel like all humans can kind of relate to that in a way that we recognize that maybe we are actually guilty and we are just justifying things to ourselves. We talk about moral justification. This is kind of a different type of justification, but it yeah, kind of also the same type of justification. I don't know. This whole, this whole beginning scene here with Marla is just eerie to me because it definitely, it, it stabs at me a little bit where you're, where I'm like, I've had those moments too, where I'm like getting agitated by something that somebody's doing. And I'm like, that's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. And then I, I really look myself in the eyes and I'm like, wait a second, you're doing something similar. What, how are you? Yeah, who I mean, are you to throw stones? <laughs> yeah, he was so he was so blind, right, to that. I thought that was so funny. He's like, this is my support group. This is my thing. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness. So after we have the introduction of Marla as a character in the conflict that that causes going to these support groups, now we finally have the introduction of Tyler, Derek, which is where you were trying to get us to talk to me about the first meeting with Tyler on the plane. Yeah, I mean, he's just sitting there, right? And he's trying to do the uh, hyperbole thing with that lady, right? I believe. And then um, he, he just kind of shows up. Am I recollecting this correctly? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you subscribe to different theories, then the lady was in his imagination as well and kind of was swapped out with Tyler. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and, and that's what I want to say is that I think at that point, maybe he personally, Edward Norton, kind of reached that pinnacle as far as he could go inside of the bubble that he had built for himself, right? He's like being extreme. He is, you know... He's deconstructing his job as much as he can. He's taking part the pieces, um, and we'll get back to deconstructing uh, later. But he's taking apart the pieces of his job, and he's like, "See this? This should shock you. See this? This should shock you." He's trying to pull back the veil on people, at least in his little world, and he's, he he kind of gets a buzz off that, um, and that's kind of where he. But then it's like, okay, now. Tyler comes in, right? And again, we're not going to debate what Tyler is or anything like that. But we're just going to say this guy shows up and he realizes that his map of reality is not that large um, because Tyler starts to enlarge it at a, an alarming rate, actually, um, to the point where it's it's really overwhelming. So... Um, he grabs yeah, everything that's I, I, not nailed down and tries to rip it away, right? He's like, the first thing he grabs is, is the, the condo. So he blows up his condo. 
um, so that he doesn't have a place to go back to. He he literally just rips everything away in an attempt to try to kind of get Jack into a state where he's malleable enough to progress, right? But in doing that, he causes yeah, an mean, immense amount of, of trauma. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think about the, uh, you know, the house they end up in. It's certainly not for show. <laughs> yes, the house is uh, falling apart and it's uh, it's like it's like when you strip something down to its foundations, you know, because you're seeing you know, these rickety old stairs and these rickety old walls and things are just just barely working, functioning. Um, it really echoes of, you know, what we're what we're calling here deconstruction. Yeah, right? deconstruction is a it's a big theme across this movie that we can kind of talk about as we do the plot and then we can kind of wrap up at the end as a moral. But deconstruction is the idea that we can strip systems and and people and organizations and everything right down to kind of the bare pieces of them and maybe understand it better. And this is, again, not a flawed methodology, really. It's a pretty good methodology. There's just a lot of give and take with deconstruction. That's where we'll get to more in the moral. So let's just kind of like keep maybe pulling this thread of deconstruction through the storyline. And then once we get to more of a place of closure, then we can talk more about deconstruction. So the next big thing that happens, obviously, is the first fight club, right? So um, when he gets back and his condo has gone, he goes into the payphone and he calls Tyler at the payphone. Tyler doesn't pick up, but somehow he's able to call him back at the payphone. (laughs) These are the weird occurrences that are starting to happen um, that if you know what's going on in the movie, you, you watch for. But he then goes and meets Tyler at this bar and they they hit it off and they end up having the first fight club in the parking lot where they just start punching each other. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said right there where Edward Norton's character, you know, he just he gets to start to color outside the lines a little bit up to this point in his life. His life has been all about being inside the lines and following all the rules. And he really is getting he has mapped that so well um, that he's starting to go a little crazy about it. Right. Because he's just like, is this all there is? Is this all there is? Is this all there is? And I think when you live, you know, you live with a small, you know, kind of playing field for life. I think that's you can slip into that. Um, you've got it just the way you want it. And then what we're calling that is, uh, over construction. So he had an overly constructed life. Um, he has so much structure. He knows exactly how it's going to go and it had been driving him nuts. And so when somebody punches him in the face, it's like, he's like, that's not supposed to happen. But then it's like this huge rush for him. Right. Um, and well, why do so we that, overstructure? Do we overstructure because humans like certainty and overstructuring gives us the illusion and maybe even the actuality of certainty? So we're able to kind of limit the resulting outcomes, the potential outcomes when we like overly structure things, or at least like we perceive it that way, that we can limit what can happen, which means that I have less risk. 
Yeah, I mean, you uh, it's consoling, right? I mean, it really is consoling. Um, if you're, uh, I'll just say it like this, if you're purely on the physical level, if you're purely a reality and not spiritual person, I think that, you know, you would you would naturally want to gravitate that way because that's just minimizing energy. It's minimizing the energy that it takes to live your life. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's that's where Edward Norton got sucked in. And then it's like when he starts fighting people. It's like an energy release. And it's a whole other, I would say, pull to life. Right. Because he totally ignored all that. I mean, he really fought a lot with his words. So I, I think he had more of a fight club with his own words at people. And, and he pretty much, you know, used that as his punch. He's been punching people his whole life, actually, <laughs> with his words. He's right? pretty clever, he right? Yeah, he's, he's very clever. Yeah. And it, you're right. And you can see it. it's changing because he's using less words, but he still puts an important emphasis on words throughout the throughout the rest of the story. I do love when he says, the narrator says, I had the sofa problem handled. He's sitting in there talking to Tyler at the bar. And Tyler says, you did lose a lot of versatile solutions for modern living. <laughs> talking about his, his condo blowing up. You lost a lot of versatile solutions for modern living. And it, that that's if that doesn't fit exactly what we're trying to talk about here, what does? It's basically trying to say, like, yeah, you you thought you had it handled. You tried to reduce the, the potential outcomes to reduce your risk. And it really felt like it. But, like, you... What we're saying here is like we risk if we do that, we risk overstructuring and overstructuring. It, it removes the potential for the variation that causes character development in our lives. We need some of the pain. We need to see different scenarios in order to grow. And that's kind of where Edward Norton was at is he's just he's repeating the same process over and over and over again. And he's just like dialed in. But there's no he's not going up, so he must be going down in terms of his development. Oh, yeah, you shrink. Right. I mean, if you uh, if you overstructure everything to a point where you know what's going to happen next, I mean, how could you possibly let's say in business, how could you grow your business? How could you possibly be ready for that unless it's literally a <clears throat> I would say a large moat? Um, oh, sorry, a wide moat. That's what I meant to say, a wide moat. Uh, business advantage, right? If you have a wide moat business advantage, um, at some point your company had to not have overstructuring. But then what happens is typically, I mean, just you, you see this, you know, over and over, the story repeats itself, which is someone helps you build a wide moat. They don't think small. They think big and they get establish this a major uh, business advantage in the marketplace. And then uh, after that business advantage is uh, established, then the over constructors come in and they make rules and they make sure it's figured out and they make the regulations and they make all these different things. And the moat starts to narrow um, because you've really got people catching up to you now. Um, because you've built all the structure around it. Now, I'm not saying you don't need structure to sell a product. You don't need straight. Of course you do. You need, pro, you know, you need structure to sell a service. You need structure to sell a product. Um, I think what the, the lesson here is, is that, don't, you know, I mean, one, one aspect of it is, is that when you overconstruct, you run the risk of not establishing, you know, your next business advantage. 
um, because you've you've really focused so much on the one thing um, and you've built up everything around it. And it, it's really this eggs in you know, the basket scenario, right? All your eggs in one basket, you know, and then the basket fails. Um, this is really a case for diversification as well. Um, when you talk about, and, and, and that really can't happen organically when you well, over, overstructure. It, it narrows your, overstructuring narrows your range of outcomes, which structuring in general attempts to narrow your range of outcomes. So if you're trying to narrow the range of outcomes, adding more structure is a good thing. The problem is when you get obsessed with narrowing the range of outcomes until it gets down to like something that's extremely predictable, you lose the ability to gain an advantage because the advantage in business is in the range of outcomes, is in the plus side of the range of outcomes. So basically like just, you know, if you're not a statistician or anything, you know, data head or whatever here, the idea is that like, you know, you can predict within a range or a confidence interval something that's, go, you know, what could potentially happen. You know, we can think about it in terms of sports betting and maybe an easy way to talk about it. It's like, well, maybe the Bucks are going to win the Super Bowl this year. OK, well, the the Vegas just gives them a certain odds, but those odds are indicative of that. There's a positive kind of a positive end of that interval. What could happen? where the Bucs win 14 games and then they're going to be very heavy Super Bowl champions and you're going to have them at good odds. Or there's like a negative end of that where the, the you know, Tom Brady gets injured or something like that. And suddenly their Super Bowl odds drop. And now you have the low the low range of outcomes. So when you're gambling, you want to end up on the high range of outcomes. And that's how you gain business advantages. Right. That's how you built the wide moat in the first place. Most likely was you took some calculated gambles. And so that variation is is key in the process that you don't reduce your your variation down to the point where you can no longer capitalize on the positive end of a confidence interval. Yeah, I like that. Um, I think that that is uh, that's a very good example. And you know, when we talk about um, you know, look at the deconstruction side too. You know, and let's get more into that with the story. Um, Give me some examples of how Tyler continues to deconstruct his life, because we'll come back to um, this overconstruction versus overly deconstructed, because um, I think this is that's really meaty right there. So tell me some more deconstruction examples and how he's trying to like <laughs> kind of teach him a lesson. You know, it's like, oh, teach you a lesson. I mean, I think that's a lot of what's what's coming out of this. Yeah. So we can just kind of follow the story in chunks here. Then um, one of the examples that I see of the deconstruction happening. Well, I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead in the story, <clears throat> but is the car crash scene when they're driving and Tyler is really, it, it, it's it's kind of mapped onto the scene with Raymond, the guy that they hold up outside of the gas station and they, you know, they, they threaten him telling him he has to become a veterinarian because that was his dream, right? You, you can map both of these onto it. They're both deconstructive tools that are trying to be done um, here. So in the car crash scene, he's he's deconstructing your purpose and your your kind of your next steps down into you're going to die anyway. It's like this super and, and this is like a very stoic way to look at things. Um, you, again, we talk about stoicism a lot on here. We're big. I would say we're both big fans of stoicism. We, we subscribe to a lot of the different concepts of stoicism. We implement a decent amount of it in our lives. So, again, don't hear me wrong here. I, I do even something that I really care about and like I have a lot of critiques of, though. So one of the critiques that you could potentially have of stoicism, not at all, again, saying Tyler is a stoic because he's not really. But 
um, is how you can see that you can potentially deconstruct something down into, well, if you're going to die anyway, then X. And that's what Tyler tries to do here, right? He does it in the car crash scene and he does it in the scene with Raymond. He's basically just saying like, well, you're going to, you know, at, at some point, everybody's life expectancy reaches zero. So why not now? Why not just use the threat of death to force yourself to do something? And that's exactly what he tries to do with Jack as well in the car, in the car crash scene, right? He's just like, he's like, basically like, make a decision. Come on, do something, do something. And he's just like driving into oncoming traffic. <laughs> yeah, it's this uh, idea of mundane uh, eventuality, right? And he really uses that and plays that card so many times mundane eventuality you know well you're gonna die anyway well you're gonna you know this is gonna happen anyway i think that's actually a very uh solid thread throughout this entire movie because if you think about the uh support groups um you know jack is truly terrified of all these mundane eventualities oh well you're gonna get testicular cancer anyway oh well you're gonna um get the parasite anyway. <laughs> That's just so funny when, when he's going back and forth with Marlon, he's like, I'll take parasite, I'll take blood parasites or I'll take brain parasites or whatever. And she's like, <clears throat> no, that's like one of my favorite ones. You know, um, I just think it's funny cause it was, you know, the whole, the horse trading that they were doing, you know, around the different, uh, support groups, but, you know, getting back to this mundane eventuality, right. It, it's just, it, that card is played over and over and over. And that's the motivator um so talk to me about um well that's his main motivator right is the mundane yeah. eventual it, well, it i guess it's not he tries to take the mundane eventuality because let's be real here mundane eventuality is something we all kind of understand as much as you can understand something like that in the present um because it does take place over time and it's hard for us to really grasp that as humans it definitely is for me but he tries to take that and make it like a present thing. He takes the mundane eventuality, like the 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 remember we will all remember you will die. You know, memento mori is the the term that means remember you will die. And it's a it's meant to be a positive instigator to wake up every day and do something meaningful, right? But he tries to like pull the mundane eventuality forward and just be like, you could die right now, man. And that's it's it. I think we we start to get into some of the ways that the deconstruction fails um, because it's such a harsh way to deconstruct something. It's like taking a wrecking ball to it. And like sometimes you need to take a wrecking ball to it, but human beings rarely need you to take a wrecking ball to them. Well, well, let's talk about lightweight wrecking ball here, though. Um, let's talk about and I'd like to kick this around for a second, but uh, you're going to retire anyway. OK. So let's go off that one for a second. You're going to retire anyway. That is um, a pretty good motivator for me um, because I want to leave a legacy. And I think that's, uh, um, you know, it's a very important thing to me. It's an important thing to most people. However, is there an existential push, right? um to go that direction to to make a legacy if you don't think about you know retiring someday from your job from your career um talk to me about that one drew how does that one make you feel is that something that you think about sometimes well i think that one's still hard for me even because it seems like it's far enough in the future that it's just a little bit difficult for me to grasp it and it's it's meaningful and it it does motivate me, but it's like a, if you're looking at a pie chart of my motivation, 
it's not the primary motivator for me. So what I'm trying to figure out here is is how do you how do we like successfully take and move those um, what did you call them the the eventuality or whatever the the mundane eventuality yeah the mundane eventuality yeah. there's gotta how do we take those and move them forward that, right? in a way that's productive yeah what's what's the positive uh, positive version of mundane eventuality what could be this you know shining uh, motivator this uh, this this thing that we you know we typically say carrot but there's it's much more than a carrot it's something that really gets you down deep um you well, know it's purpose it, for me <laughs> it's, yeah. it's understanding yeah, right. your purpose you, you touched on it earlier when you said if you see the world as purely physical then you're you might have a lot in common with the way that tyler i mean sorry the way that jack thinks or even the way that Tyler thinks potentially, uh, but Tyler does seem to have a, a heavily spiritual element about him. And when we talk about spiritual here, I don't want to get too mixed with the idea of spiritual energy is that this is kind of your core energy in terms of purpose. So whatever your purpose is, that's the spiritual side of you. So if you if if, if we choose to avoid questions of purpose and why are we here? then we tend to not have a central purpose in our life, which means, like you said, Derek, it's very hard to latch on to and make changes and build positive habits. Purpose is one of the most important motivators for people. When we look at Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, um, Viktor Frankl was a, a Holocaust survivor and wrote this awesome uh, book. Very short, easy, easy read. But in the end, he surmise that the people who the people who progressed and and the people who made it through the the thing one of the things they had in common is a purpose they had a purpose and that purpose was generally from outside of themselves so we tyler tries to create that purpose right with project mayhem he creates a purpose he kind of manufactures a purpose of he wants to take down the credit card companies, right? He wants to to get rid of the corporate fat cats. He uses that to motivate Project Mayhem. Yeah, <clears throat> well, and he just picks on the biggest, you know, target in the room or whatever. You know, I think it's it's so easy to go that direction with the thinking, and um, I'm sure that was in line even. Uh, I, okay, here's an interesting thought. Uh, 1999 was when this movie was made. And um, and I, this could be just a total coincidence, but it could not be. Um, the stock market was at an all time high at that time um, because we were just before the dot com crash. Right. And so I think when you're talking corporates and different things, you know, I'm sure people were really, you know, more of like envious of, you know, the, the corporates that were really had inflated capitalization uh, in the market. So. Um, so I think that's the context of, you know, kind of where they were going with that. Um, yeah, the traditional and, and view of picked movie, on them. There's, it's the always going to be somebody movie, to pick right? on. That, yeah. In context, when it came out, I think is it's anti-materialism, right? It's anti-money, yeah. it's, yeah. it, it's anti not necessarily totally anti-money, but right, it's anti the current monetary system and stuff like that. And we're kind of like those are obvious things, at least to me, when I watch this movie and, and things totally things that, that we can all think about 
we, at Wonder Tour, we want to bring kind of unique light to things. So we're probably going to not talk about the obvious stuff in most of the content that we go through. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, let's go with anti-meaning, though, too. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's where I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm ready for it. Um, why don't we just uh, why don't we just go to the moment here? And yeah. the moment for us today is when, um, you know, Edward Norton's character is starting to understand what in the world Tyler has weaved this uh, this this web he's weaved here. And he's got all these people in the house and he's running around. And then here's the moment where, you know, the guys come in and they're like, you know, put a couple bullets in our one of our dudes here or whatever. And he's like, oh, my, you know, who is it? Or whatever. And he finds out it's Bob. And I think that's the moment where he realized that Deacon, you know, it is it, this de, this this journey of deconstruction has really resulted in mayhem. Um, and mayhem is, you know, it's another form of chaos, I would say. Um, it's really just, uh, you know, a complete mess. And and he realizes at this point that, you know, all these little catchphrases like you're the crap of the earth and and all these different things that Tyler says, you know, they actually have consequences and the consequences are starting to come back now. And this whole deconstruction thing has made mayhem. And we'll talk about why. How do you make mayhem? Um, you know, and he's now living the opposite reality he was living before which was the overconstructed world and where he had little to no consequences because he did everything perfectly and by the book um and i'm not saying you know don't do everything perfectly by the book you should you should do be honest and you should do things right and that's not what this is about here we're just contrasting you know this world of uh that this world that ever norton's character is essentially uh made for himself by listening to tyler and letting Tyler in his inner ring and really letting him uh, influence him strongly. Right. And now he's in the middle of this mess. And this is this is the moment for today's uh, discussion. So we're going to talk about deconstruction with this moment. And I think that. I just like following Bob's trajectory throughout the movie. You know, I'm a big sucker for the scenes that map onto each other. The first scene that we have at the support group with Bob hugging. Uh, Bob hugging Jack and then we also have a similar image at the first fight club that they go to together where Bob's there and he's grabbing Jack tightly they're fighting but um, he's he's grabbing him tightly and these are the moments where Jack feels okay about himself these are the moments where he feels um, I don't know if he feels progress necessarily but he feels like he's protected and he's in a, he's in an okay space, right? Where, where maybe I, I think it's protected, right? He feels protected and, and that protection gets broken when Bob dies. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, and, and no support groups, let's, let's talk about that for a second. So I think, uh, you know, with the support groups, he didn't really let on too much, but I would, would say that deconstruction worked a little bit for him there. And I think that's why he felt some comfort because he removed a little bit of his structure. He let his guard down. He was a little bit vulnerable and he let himself cry. That is where he let uh, let loose of a little bit of structure. And it was an experiment for him. And it actually worked really well. 
Um, and he started to get a taste for it right then. And I think that's where the deconstruction kind of started. And then obviously Tyler stepped in and finished it to the nth degree. But uh, yeah, I just I wanted to reiterate that because I thought that was, you know, a really good point that you brought back up, you know, some of those moments that he had with Bob. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's the um, the power of just a little bit of deconstruction and then reconstruction. So, all right, keep going. I know you were you were continuing to jam on Bob there. So oh, you're good. So this I, I'm not making up anything about this idea of deconstruction and reconstruction. This is a very common theme in different media. Deconstruction, we talked about, is the idea of really breaking things down, and reconstruction is building them back up. So in, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but, you know, one of my favorite um, anime of all time, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, the kind of the core of the show is built around this system of deconstruction and reconstruction. And there's this character who has um, this character basically only subscribes to the idea of deconstruction for the majority of the show. He only believes in deconstruction because so much deconstruction happened to him that it kind of tore him apart. And so when I look at people and I find them in the world who are dead set on deconstruction, I think about, you know, how has that person been impacted thus far in their life? Have they been too deconstructed? Um, and, and is that what happened to Tyler, right? As we hear kind of Tyler's story, we do know that it's kind of made up um, in Jack's head, but we hear Tyler's backstory and it seems like his life may have been too deconstructed. And so the only thing he knows is how to deconstruct, but no one ever told him how to rebuild. And that's what all of us want to learn because as leaders, it's our job to help break down bad habits in ourselves and in others. But we can't leave the void where those bad habits are broken. If you leave a void, then another bad habit comes to take its place or the same bad habit comes in and gets roots again, right? So what we need to do is we have to rebuild once we deconstruct. It's especially important when we talk about mo like the models in your mind, right? Not just like not just habits and stuff like that, but the, how, the way you think. If you deconstruct the way somebody thinks and tear, tear down the way that they do logic and problem solving, but you don't provide an alternative in its place, then that can put them in a really tough spot. Yeah, those uh, those moments to to deconstruct where let's say you have cooperative deconstruction. Those are very special moments um, in uh, in business and, and in working with people in teams. Um, those are rare. Um, and I know we haven't talked about that till now, because really we've talked about Tyler being the one that's just going around single handedly deconstructing. Um, but. There are times where you do get the opportunity to kind of work with people uh, in a concerted way. And let's let's talk about like, you know, an organization. Right. When you start to say, look, uh, structurally, we do see these things and you can kind of sync up with people. Those are beautiful moments, actually, because you're all on the same page about part of it needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed. Um but yeah, uh, and most of the time, you know, you you do encounter those, like you're saying, Drew, is that <clears throat> I would say that uh, modern articles, business articles, a lot of the a lot of articles I've read, it, they talk about, oh, well, that's a toxic person, <laughs> right? That's a that's uh, that's someone who's a, a toxic. Let I don't even want to say collaborator because I don't want to give you know that attention to toxicity, 
um, <clears throat> but tox toxic types um, tend to do, you know, they, they don't have an equal ratio of deconstructing and constructing. And maybe that's what this is about, actually. What do you think about the idea? Well, let's let's kind of touch on this. You've got this equation that we, we kind of came up with, right? It's, it's deconstruction minus reconstruction equals mayhem. And um, but now that I think about that, um, it's it's interesting, right? You really you've got this ratio of reconstruction versus deconstruction. Let's play with that a little bit and uh, see where it goes. Yeah, so I can talk about, you know, I don't like to shy away from what I believe. And I think that in our current I can't speak for all cultures, but in Western culture, we have a fascination with deconstruction. We love to deconstruct things, especially deconstructing people. And like you said, there is a need to deconstruct. You know, we need to look at ourselves and we need to deconstruct the negative aspects of ourselves because that's going to allow us to move forward. Um, we want to help others to deconstruct their negative aspects as well. If we are people of love who care about, who truly care about others and don't just want to tear them apart for our own good. But we don't do a good job of teaching how to reconstruct. And like you even said, like I read a lot of articles on business and the easy thing to talk about is how to deconstruct. But the hard thing is how to reconstruct. A good consultant can come in and tell you how to deconstruct, you know, on day one. Basically, they can do a quick day of analysis on your operations and your life and be like, here's what you need to deconstruct. But what they're going to struggle to do is help you to reconstruct. Yeah, and I think that that is that's right on. Um, and I think it takes a lot less time to deconstruct. Uh, to tear down is very easy, but to build up um, is a painstaking process many times. And it requires a lot of patience. Um, you know, you just don't, you're just not able to reconstruct at the same rate that you can deconstruct. And, and I don't know what that is um, or why that is, but um, I think it's, it's actually, if you think about, <laughs> but let's think, we think of a lot of metaphors. I like your wrecking ball metaphor from before. So I'm going to jump back into that one and think about how, you know, if you swung a wrecking ball at a building, the building's gone. Right. Um, but it takes months to put that thing together. And I think it's because you've got to use plans, right? You've got to take steps. Um, and you have to make each step meaningful to the next step. Uh, and that's that's why maybe, you know, the reconstructing is shied away from because it's actually that's the hard work. Right. That's the hard work of leadership. Um, it takes a lot of I, I'm going to go back to patience. It takes a lot of patience to reconstruct, doesn't it? It does take a lot of patience to reconstruct. And it also takes some level of unison right you have to you have to be unified in order to reconstruct or you have to come to some sort of a decision in order to deconstruct oftentimes you it's not that hard to get people to agree on a deconstruction or to get somebody to agree that yeah that's a bad habit you know i should i should kick my smoking habit or whatever but what's hard is to get people to agree on the route by which we're going to reconstruct and the path that you know not, not just the how we're going to reconstruct, but the where that we're going to reconstruct is going. You know, if we're going to kick one habit, you know, am I going to am I going to start playing racquetball? Am I going to start <laughs> right? Am I going to start playing 
guitar. I don't know. You, like you need to pick something else up to, to fill that place. It doesn't have to be, you know, a physical habit necessarily, but if you're going to, to vacate a room in your head, you need to refill that room with something before it becomes filled on its own. Yeah. I like, um, I like a, the analogy of if you drive around in the country, um, in like, you know, the rural areas, um, a lot of times what you'll see are these farmhouses that they have uh, additions on them and then they have the addition to the addition and then they have the addition to the addition to the addition. And, you know, with a house, it, the, the metaphor kind of falls apart because at some point you can't just keep adding to a house. You just can't. Um, it, it just gets weird. Um, it looks weird. <laughs> There's just lots of things that look weird about it. But if we think about um, ourselves and I'm going to harken back to our Tony Stark episode where we're all prototypes, um, I want to make this connection that you know, I, I said in that one, uh, you know, you, my friend, are a prototype yourself. And think about how we're constantly renewed. And I think this is a, uh, you know, this is a magnanimous characteristic. Um, this may be one of our magnanimous morals for this for this episode. But where you really have to do deconstruction and reconstruction in waves in yourself. Um, think about how this room's old, uh, but it's not the oldest. This other room's the oldest and how, what its relationship to the other rooms are. You have to understand that. Think of your mind as a house, whatever you want to think about. But, um, these habits that that you're talking about, Drew, um, you've got to continue to go through in waves, right. And really renew yourself. And you say, you know, am I serving, uh, those around me the best that I possibly can? And, I don't know. What do you think about that? Oh, I'm fully on board with that. I've been trying to practice that for the last couple of years. And to even to that metaphor of the house, trying to clean out the house and go into different rooms and try and get things to be renewed. I To pull it back to Fight Club, there's the bumper sticker on the back of the car that we see in one scene that says, recycle your animals. And the way that Tyler recycles the animals, right, is he ta- he goes to the liposuction clinic and he gets the fat and turns it into soap and explosives. So he the, the idea the idea is actually placed in front of Jack that he needs to reconstruct, and that is his journey here, right? Is he's trying to reconstruct himself into something that's more positive. But what Tyler's offering is just complete and utter deconstruction. And that's what we see at the end, right? Where he's blowing up these 10 buildings, these credit card companies. It's like, what, what is that going to do, right? It's going to deconstruct, but it provides no means of reconstruction at all. No, not even a vision for what reconstruction could look like. Yeah. And that's not vision, right? Yeah. You don't, there, like you said, there is no vision there and that's not leadership, you know, um, or that's the, negative pole of leadership you can't have one pole and not have the other and i like to think about deconstruction and reconstruction as being on opposite poles and really if you want to have true balance you know you can't be um you know stirring everything up kicking the bees nest you know and all that stuff and and then not go in and actually do anything of value um and of utility to other people and i man that's that's a huge lesson to take away from this actually i mean i i really like this lesson um because i think this is uh let's talk about this in the context of innovation 
you know, you can't be innovating every part of your business in a risky way all the time. You need to be innovating often, but I think there is the ratio of deconstruction and reconstruction to be uh, mindful of here. So that's the mindset that I would like to think is, is that what what um, what ratio of deconstruction and reconstruction and I'm going to am I going to have in this area of the business? What ratio of deconstruction and reconstruction I'm going to have in this area of the business? And I think if you consider that, um, let's talk about where you'd have most of the reconstruction at. Well, you can contextualize it, be, it to your business. You have yeah, to, right? Because we can't just be give a, a ratio. Area. We can't just give a ratio. For a human, I can say you can de- you should deconstruct no more, you know, no more than two areas at once. May really one, but maybe two areas at once. I can pretty definitively say that that is the the wisdom that I have learned in my own life and I have heard from others. But in a business, I don't know how big your business is. I don't know what it looks like, right? There, it takes contextual wisdom to understand what needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed and, and at what rate you can afford to do it. Cause that's what you're talking about, right, Derek? You're talking about like, Hey, if I, if I've got, you know, five different business units and each one has 10 teams and stuff like that, how, how do I go about kind of like deconstructing and reconstructing over time? Yeah. And it's something you got to be mindful about. And where, where I was getting at before was just really looking at, you know, we've talked about establishing the next uh, wide moat area right and and that's going to be your growth area and so that's the one that's going to be under the heaviest construction of all but you know maybe the ones that are providing revenue and again this is just it's just a business discussion you know in general but maybe the ones that are providing revenue right um steady revenue uh, they're giving you you know a little bit of profit keeping the lights on that kind of thing maybe those you leave alone maybe you don't deconstruct those maybe those are fine right they may be narrow moat but at least they're making money for you right and i think if you see this a lot of the times this is what you see with uh businesses that are kind of retooling themselves and industries that you know their moat has shrunk over the years and but i i give you a good one general electric right general electric I mean, I've, I've, you know, watched that one a little bit, you know, from time to time. And it's been interesting to see all the things that they've been through. Um, and they still maintain some very wide moat areas. You know, aircraft engines are awesome. They are just so good with that area of their business. But they branched out and did some different things. Um, I don't know. Just an example of kind of how that plays out and how you need to balance that deconstruction and reconstruction. Um we can take it back to what we said before, Derek, with the confidence intervals, yeah. right? It's like yeah. you need to stack. Now, Now, in order to do it for a business, you need to look at each area and decide, am I okay with a narrow range of outcomes in this area? You should add structure and keep structure if you're okay with a narrow range of outcomes in this area, knowing that that narrow range of outcomes over time, This and this is, again, this is not based on research or anything, this is based on my experience, that narrow range of outcomes over time will will turn into a gradual decline if you don't do anything about it. it. That narrow range of outcomes slowly teeters towards decline. But you can't, again, like we talked about, you can't really invest in deconstruction and reconstruction of every area at all times. You don't have the people resources, you don't have the capital resources, 
to be able to pull that off. So you have to decide how you're going to do it. And so if you stack those confidence intervals and you say, okay, this is an area where we like to have a wide range of outcomes because we think we have a competitive advantage and we can land in the higher range of outcomes here. But this area over here, this is this is an area we need stability in. We just need the revenue to keep things chugging, basically. So we're going to be okay with going for a narrow range of outcomes over here, knowing that we're probably not going to hit a home run. We're probably just going to get a base hit. Well, and that's why I think people think that startups are so sexy, right? Because it's pure construction, you know? Um, that's fun, isn't it? You know, it's fun to just construct things from literally, uh, you know, they, they say uh, greenfield versus brownfield. Um, you know, when you're talking about greenfield, yeah, it's just, it's really easy, but you can make, I think in some ways you can make some key mistakes or you can come up with <clears throat> maybe not the, you know, most comprehensive thing uh, in the end, you know, because of, you know, maybe you, I don't know, it's just interesting to me. And I think that's why a lot of startups just get bought and then incorporated into somebody else's reconstruction, right? So they they do the construction, they go rapid as fast as they can, um, they get a product out there, they become viable, and then they become part of someone else's larger reconstruction of their business. And you know, that's what they, they I don't know if you heard this term, Drew, but aqua hire um, aqua hire is, you know, when you buy a company, but you also get all the people uh, in that company. And that is it, it is a strategy that has been used for larger corporates to kind of, you know, piecemeal in uh, new swaths of culture into their companies that you know, they didn't have before. Right. And then and it's it is a cycle of deconstruction and reconstruction. But think of it more of like instead of this granular type deconstruction, reconstruction that you'd have to do normally if you're on the inside of an organization. This is like a wholesale swap out of a block, you know, like a whole floor of a building, for example. Um, so there's all kinds of these different cycles and they're all going on all around us all the time. Right. And I think that's very fascinating that, you know, uh, in this world, I guess we're just, you know, we have to constantly renew things because they get static for too long. They start to crumble uh, and they start to fall apart. Uh, and in the case of this movie, you know, Tyler, he hastens the whole process uh, because he, you know, wants to show, see how fragile it all is, uh, see how weak it all is. You know, I think he's trying to shock Edward Norton's character with that, um, you know, to motivate him like we've talked about. Um, but yeah, this is going on constantly, isn't it, Drew? Yeah, Tyler's kind of trying to, he has like an experiment without a hypothesis, basically, that he's running in my mind. He doesn't have any kind of hypothesis of how this is going to end. He's just running a big experiment. But for us, we have the luxury, if we apply wisdom to our deconstruction and reconstruction, I like your example of Aquahire because it shows you how do you fill the role of reconstruction after you deconstruct something um, or after you you have a need for construction in a certain area it gives you there are all kinds of different ways you can do it the the wisdom is figuring out where and when and what building block to use but then you can pick up these off-the-shelf building blocks essentially not to say that people are a built off-the-shelf building block but you know what i mean basically you can pick up these building blocks that fit in the hole on your construction or that you're working on and you can place it in there and that might allow you to speed up the process and get a faster growth rate yeah i mean you can 
I guess you can kind of cheat with once you have capital, you can cheat the growth rate a little bit if you make the assumption that you're able to mesh these cultures of the aqua hire. Um, so it's it's interesting, though, because let's say, you know, you do aqua hire as a large corporate and, you know, you you have this vision that you're going to make a more techie culture. I, I still think it ends up being a little bit, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of isolated in some respects. And I don't know how much you can truly engineer. <clears throat> it still takes time. So those kind of the knitting, the knitting that goes on between these blocks in your deconstruction and reconstruction, I think, you know, that's something that you've got to be aware of that there's still, um, I think that's where the organic growth rate still pops into it, right, Drew, is that you have to re-knit back together these things. You have to stitch them back together um, even if you do wholesale, uh, kind of reconstruct a piece through an aqua hire or um, you undertake a certain reconstruction of the business. So I do, I do like that you kind of brought that back up because it made me think a little bit more about how these pieces have to fit back together. And they're not just, you know, Legos, you don't really, you can still, they're still disjointed, right? You can still pop them off. Um, but they don't truly, just have like Legos that fit together. You got to like weld these things together, essentially. That's right. <laughs> and they might they be different be material bonded. types. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, got to bond. Right. Yeah, but, they got to bond. And that's networking, right? I really, you know, that that really, to me, is the networking piece. It's not necessarily, it, of course, you can do it with the org chart and the org chart is always going to be there. And, you know, because if people don't see the org chart, they're like, this is mayhem, you know. <laughs> um, but you know, really where it gets good is the networking piece, right? Where people are making connections to each other across all kinds of different links. And, um, you know, what's cool about that is when you do reduce some reconstruction, networking is the one thing that kind of survives that. Um, it's not part of the org chart, you know, and so it's very transcendent. Uh, and it's, I'm telling you, it is, I mean, I, I, you know, I personally feel networking is and people connecting point to point. Um, it's probably the number one secret sauce of any organization that's going to survive. Um, and, it, and, and really, it builds true resiliency, um, just like it does if you are a person who has a lot of connections internally. I mean, let's take it back to ourselves again. You know, you deconstruct yourself, you reconstruct yourself. What are you truly doing there? You're building links, right? You're rebuilding all the links and you're making sense of your past. You're making sense of your future. You're making sense of your present. Um, so these parallels, I like to think of organizations as organisms as well, because they really are made up of people anyway, right? People that, you know, um, that have all the same needs to be reconstructed and deconstructed on a regular basis to be renewed. Um what do you think about that? Yeah, that fits into the fits into the model that I think it's from like the book The Talent War talks about how like the secret to Navy SEAL operations is talent plus leadership and like the intersection of that is networking, right? It's you have to have good talent and you have to have you have to have people leading the talent well and then you need the talent to be connected together. So let Humor me for a second here and let's apply this to how do you help like an individual? Because it also applies to yourself, right? It applies to you. It applies to somebody else when you talk about deconstructing and reconstructing. But there's a couple different principles here. 
when it's you, it's easier to contextualize it and have the wisdom of maybe what building block you're going to try to fit back in on the reconstruction. When it's somebody else on your team or in your family or whatever that you have a, a influence with that you're trying to support in their reconstruction, all you can really do is show them like like I just literally imagine myself holding out my hand and spinning an object in my hand. Right. I can show different models, maybe from my life, maybe from other people's lives that are that that, that can be used to fill a slot for them. Right. And say, like, hey, this could be a useful tool for reconstruction. So I, I just like the idea of thinking about when you when you're trying to help somebody else um, and especially when you're trying to help yourself, you've got to look at how, what tools do you have that might fit your reconstruction operation. Yeah, I, I think that's really good to take away, away uh, from today is that, you know, if we're going to live magnanimously, uh, we're going to lead magnanimously. Um, we really want to be in the business of of reconstruction. Um, but obviously it's it's a reconstruction with, you know, um, the permission and the trust of other people. And, you know, you gain that through um, the kindness that we, um, you know, exude and the gentleness that we exude as leaders and and just, you know, really understanding someone's perspective um, as well. Right. So um, you can't really be in the business of reconstructing until you fully understand how someone sees the world. And um, so I, I think that's an important thing. We can we can talk about that for a minute here as we're wrapping up, um, which is just really. Um, you can't be in the business of reconstructing magnanimously until you truly understand um, how someone is, you know, thinking, feeling, what their hopes are. Really empathy, right? Empathy is key. That that was going to be my last takeaway here. When I watch this movie, one of the core feelings that I have here is just a immense level of empathy and also of unsure, I'm unsure of myself in my ability to even understand what the narrator is going through. And I kind of took that and reflected on it and tried to figure out what does that mean to me? And I think for me, it's really about looking at each situation and trying to see it for the reality that it is versus the perspective that I have on it. We see all these different perspectives on the same events, you know, at the base level, just from Jack and Tyler, but then from all the other characters uh, as well, like Marla and Bob and and so on. Their perspectives are completely different on the events, but there's still a, a reality at the core of it. Right. Maybe the reality is the development of Jack's mind and his mindset and stuff like that. But maybe the reality is an actual physical thing that's happening and a, a storyline that's being followed. But there is an actual reality at the core of it. So my challenge to myself after listening to this, because it, it's a really impossible to truly know what somebody else is going through, somebody else who's going through testicular cancer, for example, given that we're talking about Fight Club or something. I can't imagine what that battle is in their head every day when they wake up. But I, I just want to be, as a magnanimous leader, someone who is able to be there, someone who is able to, to just seek to understand that person, however they need to be understood, however they're asking to be understood. And I think that it just starts with perspective. It starts with trying to cut through 
I see it this way, you see it that way, and and just starting to try to take yourself out. And, and I know that this is, I, I can't quote exactly where it's from now, but I've heard it before, Shane Parrish, The Knowledge Project, a certain episode. Um, I think Barbara Oakley might have talked about it, but the idea that as we develop as humans, there are kind of tiers of human development. And that human development seeks to reach like this phase four tier of kind of transcending the self where you no longer see things truly from your perspective, but you see things through the perspective of the whole. You're able to see things clearly and you're able to see that everything is not about you. I am on a journey to, to, to learn and to do that, Derek. What, what does that mean for you? I think we're on that same journey, man. I mean, that's, that is exactly, um, it really gives you a lot of meaning. It's really the opposite of, of Tyler's, uh, viewpoint, right? And his viewpoint is that he wants to tear down everything to its complete bare bones, which means there's nothing left of the individuality that makes us, you know, I mean, just, uh, uh, this kind of a tapestry, right, of viewpoints and of lives. And, um, you know, he wants to rip it down to its threads. Like, we're all thread. We're all thread in one big tapestry. Well, what about the pictures that we were making with our lives, right? What about, um, you know, this this kind of weave that we are? And, um, you know, I, it's um, – I think that's that's kind of what I'm taking away here is, that, you know, as a as a magnanimous leader – Right. You really you grow to appreciate that. And I like how you put it. So I'm not going to try to add anything on top. Um, we can't strip out the highs and the lows, baby. We got We got yeah. The highs and the lows are a part of the process. That is a part of the character development that we're seeking. And because of that, that absolutely means that we have to be able to see the vision from other people's perspective. We have to be able to see how they view purpose, how they view the world. And for me, that means that I have to let my pride take a back seat personally. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and don't devolve into veil pulling like Tyler does, you know, because he's just ugh, too much. Right. And and he's too much of the showing the mirror. And um, I think you had a phrase is like, you know, you turn the mirror, you just kind of show a little bit, you know, good leaders. Uh, yeah. Good that leaders through. that I know. They because yeah. in order for us to change most of the time, at least for me, I need to have a mirror to be looking in the mirror and realize that I don't like what I see. Tyler kind of like shows you this broken mirror and it's just like, look at yourself, look at yourself. You're all screwed up. But that is not a good recipe for humans to change. That's taking the wrecking ball deconstruction approach. What well, good leaders do is they tell you a story. And with that story, they one degree at a time, turn the mirror towards you in a logical way that is, that is attentive to your feelings, your, your emotions, your experiences and as the mirror is turned towards you, there is this feeling of of both happiness and sadness kind of that comes over you at the same time where you're like, I need to change. And now, because the mirror was turned on me slowly and lovingly, I, I kind of know why. And I know what I need to do. I know I need to deconstruct. I know I need to reconstruct. And this is, you know, this is my first step. I'm going to start to take that journey. That's perfect. Yeah, we'll... Uh... Let's just leave it right there because I think that's exactly where we need to leave it at. Um, okay, well, if you had any uh, any additional thoughts, um, 
I, you know, ideas, you know, different things to the comments, you know, about today's episode, um, you know, hit us up on the wonder tour on Twitter. And, um, you know, we just, um, want to leave that open and drew any final parting thoughts there. No, we didn't even touch on the end of the movie, which is totally fine. We kind of got into it a little bit there, but I, I, I'm on it, the Wonder Tour for the journey of character development. Sometimes that means that we get caught up in a, a weird side way of looking at something, and that thing is is what we fascinate, is what we're fascinated by, and that thing is what what because I think Derek, when we go on this journey in full transparency, it is absolutely a transformation journey for us as well. Our character is formed in every single episode as we go. So for us, we, you know, it might not be the we we know we just talked about perspectives. We know that everybody's going to see things slightly differently and fixate on different things. But the things that we fixate on here, this is just one way to look at it. This is just one one opinion, one idea of how we can take the story and and apply it to our own lives. And we hope that this wonder tour is something, you know, just turning the turning the object around in our hands potentially here also offers you an opportunity to see your life differently and how you make an impact in the world. Yeah, I like that a lot. And um, and with that, I will say I will close this out here. And uh, not all who wander are lost. We'll see you next time.